podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you again for listening. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A, Napoli, and Europe. In part 2, we'll recap round 36 of Serie A and rounds 36 and 37 of Serie B. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's win over Sassuolo on Saturday. And in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Inter on Tuesday. Starting in Serie A, we have a quick update on broadcasting rights. According to ANSA, six investment funds have submitted binding offers to own a portion of the media company that will sell the TV rights. Bain, CVC, and Advent have reportedly submitted offers to purchase minority stakes, while Apollo, Fortress, and Blackstone have instead developed financing proposals. The next Lega Council meeting is on July 30th, which is Thursday, where it is expected the presidents will vote on which approach to move forward with. Moving on to Napoli, there's still no official announcement on Victor Osimhen, and it sounds like it could be a little while yet, though all indications are that he will be joining Napoli. Lille president Gerard Lopez gave a telling interview to L'Equipe. He explained that while Osimhen has chosen Napoli, there have been some obstacles which have slowed the negotiation. As we know, Osimhen changed agents in the middle of the negotiation, so they had to start over. As Lopez puts it, the negotiation is in advanced stages, only the details are missing. He also noted that Ligue 1 and Serie A have different transfer windows, so a multitude of contracts are required. Because the transaction is not official, Lopez continues to receive offers which he entertains to maintain relationships with other clubs, but he's managing their expectations. Lopez also confirmed that Lille had given defender Gabriel the go-ahead for an exit, and that Gabriel will decide his next club next week. In Europe, the final round of the English Premier League was played on Sunday with plenty to play for. Manchester United, Chelsea, and Leicester were competing for the final two Champions League spots. Wolves and Spurs were competing for the final Europa League spot, and Villa and Watford were battling to stay up. Manchester United beat Leicester 2-0, and Chelsea beat Wolves 2-0. So United and Chelsea will play in the Champions League and Leicester will play in the Europa League. The Wolverhampton loss opened the door for Tottenham whose 1-1 draw with Crystal Palace was enough to claim 6th place and a place in the Europa League. Tottenham and Wolves both finished on 59 points but Tottenham have the better goal differential. At the bottom of the table Aston Villa drew West Ham 1-1 but were helped by Arsenal who beat Watford 3-2 so Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich have been relegated. Meanwhile, on Friday, PSG defeated Saint-Étienne in the final of the Coupe de France. Kylian Mbappé left the match after a vicious tackle from Loic Perrin. It was later confirmed that Mbappé will be out for approximately three weeks with an ankle sprain and damage to the external ligament. That means that Mbappé will not play in PSG's Champions League quarterfinal match against Atalanta. That'll do it for the news. In part two, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football.
Okay, so next we'll cover the latest action in Italian football, starting with Serie A. We'll start with Juventus, who are looking to win their ninth consecutive Scudetto, and Sampdoria were standing in the way. The first half was fairly uneventful, with both sides generating mostly half chances. Quagliarella and Bernardeschi both had hard shots on target, but they were both straight at the keepers. But in the final minute of added time, Juventus went ahead on a beautifully executed set piece. Bernardeschi and Pjanic stood over the ball. Moments prior, Juventus had a free kick from a similar spot, which Bernardeschi took and missed the goal, so I think just about everyone is expecting Pjanic or Bernardeschi to go for goal. What should have been a red flag was that Ronaldo wasn't standing over the ball. Instead of shooting, Pjanic played a quick square ball to Ronaldo who hit it first time and found the bottom corner. I'm not the biggest Ronaldo fan, but you have to respect him. This is a technically very difficult shot to execute, and he made it look easy. That was Ronaldo's 31st goal on the season. Other than the goal, probably the biggest moment of the first half was Paulo Dybala coming off the field in the 40th minute with a thigh injury. With Sampdoria down a goal, the second half was more entertaining. Sampdoria had a few chances to equalize in the 54th minute. First gassed on Ramirez in swinging free kick went all the way through untouched, but Chesesne did well to get across to keep it out. Then on the ensuing free kick, Ramirez had a free header, but he just missed the mark. Ronaldo nearly scored a second in the 61st minute. Rabiot won possession around midfield and broke free with Higuain on his left and Ronaldo on his right. He went to the right, but Aldado kept it out. Rabiot was excellent once again. Juventus doubled their lead in the 67th minute on the counterattack after Matuidi won possession from Tonelli. This time Higuain broke downfield and found Ronaldo on the left side. Ronaldo's shot was stopped by Audero, but he spilled the rebound and Bernardeschi was there to score his first goal in a year and a half. Who would have thought that two of Juventus' best players in the final stretch of the season would be Rabiot and Bernardeschi? I certainly did not see that coming. Sam came close again in the 71st minute. Mehdi Ledis played an excellent cross into the box to Qualiarella, who got a lot of power on the header. Once again, though, it was straight at Chesesny, but the keeper still did well to make the reaction save. This match effectively ended in the 76th minute when Morgan Thorsby was shown a second yellow. At the same time, Matthias de Ligt was removed from the match with an injury, though it appeared to be a cramp, so he should be fine. Ronaldo was looking for opportunities to score throughout the match as he continues to compete for Capo Canoniere, and he couldn't have gotten a better chance than in the 89th minute from the penalty spot after Fabio De Pauli took down Alexandro in the box. Ronaldo stepped up and smashed his shot off the bar. That didn't help with the goal-scoring title, but as far as the match goes, it really didn't matter. Juve went on to win 2-0. Credit to Sampdoria for showing up and competing in this match, even after the red card. Had they taken some of their chances, the outcome may have been different. For Juventus, they've won their ninth consecutive Scudetto. I think most would agree this was one of the more difficult ones, both because of Juventus' shortcomings and because of the improved competition from Inter and Lazio this year. And for Maurizio Sarri, this was his first domestic title. Second place, Atalanta played Milan on Friday. With Andrea Conti and Alessio Romagnoli injured and Teo Hernandez suspended, Milan started a backline of Davide Calabria, Simon Cair, Matteo Gabbia, and Diego Laxalt. Meanwhile, Giampiero Gasperini was unable to coach Atalanta from the sidelines after he was shown a red card against Bologna. Milan opened the scoring in the 14th minute with a Chalanoglu free kick. The free kick was taken from the left wing. Chalanoglu lined up like he was going to play a cross, but instead he went for goal from a sharp angle. His shot dipped and bent towards the back post to beat Golini to give Milan a 1-0 lead. Laxalt nearly doubled Milan's lead in the 19th minute, but Golini got just a fingertip on the low strike to keep it out. 
A few minutes later, Ruslan Malinovsky went down in the box, and after he went down, he screamed in pain after Lucas Bilia stepped on his leg. VAR reviewed the play and rightly awarded Atalanta the penalty. Malinovsky took the shot himself and went for power, but Donnarumma leaned the right way and made an excellent save to preserve the lead. Chalonoglu nearly scored a second in the 30th minute, but his shot rocked the crossbar. Had he scored, it wouldn't have counted, though the replay showed Chalonoglu was quite far offside, but you can see that he's playing with confidence and his technique on that shot was excellent. Duvan Zapata equalized for Atalanta in the 33rd minute. This play started with Remo Freuler winning possession around midfield. After he played a give and go with Martin Darun, Freuler carried downfield. His shot was blocked by Matteo Gabbia, but the ball fell kindly for Zapata. He outmuscled Calabria, who was only able to nick the ball with his slide tackle before Zapata rolled his shot under Donnarumma. The second half was far less eventful. Milan nearly scored on the counterattack in the 72nd minute, but Bonaventura's shot from outside the box hit the post. This one finished 1 1. Inter beat Genoa 3 0 on Saturday, which we'll cover in part 4. With that win, Inter moved back into second place, one point ahead of Atalanta. Back to the Europa League battle, Roma took on Fiorentina at the Olimpico. This one started really slowly, in fact, other than a half chance from Pellegrini in the 30th minute, not much happened until the very end of the first half. Roma opened the scoring just before the break from the penalty spot. There's no question that Lirola fouled Bruno Perez. What stood out to me on this play, though, was that Chiesa actually played Perez on side, which to me was just as offensive as the foul. Jordan Vertu stepped up and converted the penalty to give Roma the 1-0 lead. Fiorentina nearly equalized and added time when Pezzella smashed his volley off the post from a tight angle. Mancini thought he doubled Roma's lead when his header from a free kick found the back of the goal, but the goal was ruled off for offside. The second half was end-to-end action. Mkhitaryan nearly scored Roma's second in the 53rd minute. Spinazzola picked out his run on the wing and Mkhitaryan chipped over Terracciano, but his shot just missed the goal. Moments later, Fiorentina found the equalizer from the corner kick when Milenkovic placed his header inside the back post. Mkhitaryan came close again in the 65th minute, but his left-footed shot hit the upright. Only a few minutes later, Martin Caceres blocked an Eden Dzeko shot by diving headfirst in front of it. The ball clearly hit him on the arm, but the foul wasn't given. However, Caceres did appear to be outside of the box. The story of this match happened in the 85th minute after a crazy sequence of events. First, Spinazzola picked out Kolarov's overlapping run and his shot took a slight deflection off Terracciano before hitting the upright. Dzeko got the rebound, but his shot was blocked. The ball eventually fell to Carlos Perez, whose hard-hit shot was well-stopped by Terracciano, but Terracciano gave up another big rebound. Dzeko got to the rebound first, but his shot hit the side netting. Terracciano came in to block the shot, and in his slide, he made contact with Dzeko, so a penalty was given. Dzeko appeared to be already on his way down, and it seemed the ball had already gone out of bounds. Even worse, the official did not go to the VAR to confirm the decision. Vertu converted his second penalty of the match to put Roma back ahead. Roma held on to win 2-1, and with the win, Roma are now 4 points clear of Milan, who are in 6th place. Napoli beats Sassuolo 2-0, which we'll cover in Part 3. The combination of the Milan draw and the Napoli win mean that Napoli are now only a point back of Milan for 6th spot. With Genoa losing, Lecce had an opportunity to gain ground in the battle for survival. This was an incredibly entertaining match. Bologna stormed out of the gates. Gabriel made an excellent save on Skovolsen, but the rebound fell for Musa Barrow, who played a back heel in front of the goal to Rodrigo Palacio, and he poked it in. Only three minutes later, Roberto Soriano doubled Bologna's lead with a lovely bending strike from the top of the box. Lecce gave him way too much space in the middle of the pitch. 
Filippo Falco nearly pulled one back in the 24th minute, but his left-footed strike dipped and bent just wide of the far post. Musa Barrow had a few shots at goal in the first half, coming closest in the 30th minute, but his low shot hit the upright and stayed out. Despite the goals, Gabriel was actually having a pretty good match. He made an excellent save on Barrow and on Skovolson in the first half to keep his side in the match. Bologna paid for not capitalizing on their chances. Lecce pulled one back on a corner kick. Palacio's clearance was really poor. It allowed Luchona to get to the rebound. His shot was stopped, but the rebound fell for Mancosu, who chested it in. Lucas Skorupski was very busy at the start of the second half. Filippo Falco nearly scored again in the 52nd minute with an excellent shot with his weaker right foot, but Skorupski did well to push the shot off the bar and out. Mancosu had a golden opportunity in the 61st minute with a clear shot from close range, but his shot caught too much of the goal and Skorupski was there to make another fine save. And then in the 65th minute, he made another save on a Lapadula diving header. But there was nothing Skorupski could do on Falco's shot in the 66th minute. The Italian cut into his left foot on the right side of the box and fired a rocket past the Bologna keeper. Falco nearly scored again in the 86th minute. His shot seemed goal-bound, but at the very last second, Ladislav Krejci stepped in and cleared the ball off the line at the back post. Lecce dominated the second half, but in added time, while the Lecce players were busy claiming for a penalty, Bologna countered and Musa Barrow scored a much-deserved goal. That put Bologna up 3-2, which is how this one ended. So Genoa remained four points clear of Lecce. Lecce will need to win their final two matches and they'll need Genoa to lose both of theirs. Otherwise, the Pugliese club will be heading back to Serie B. Moving on, Lazio played Verona on Sunday. Lazio were without Manuel Lazzari, who's arguably been Lazio's best player since the restart. There wasn't a ton of action in the first half. Both Ciro Immobile and Miguel Veloso had efforts from long range in the opening quarter of the match that missed the target. In the 37th minute, Verona were awarded a penalty. Patrick and Luis Felipe got crossed up which allowed Zaccani to get to the ball before being fouled by Felipe. This was a bit of a soft call, but nonetheless, Sofian Amrabat stepped up and scored his first goal for Verona, and probably his last having already been sold to Fiorentina. Lazio were awarded their own penalty in added time for potentially two different reasons. Corey Gunter seemed to foul Immobile, while at the same time, Darko Lazovic handled the ball. Ciro Immobile stepped up and scored his 32nd of the season to draw level. Sergei Milinkovic-Savage scored his second in as many matches to put Lazio ahead. His free kick took a deflection off the wall which left Radunovic stranded. Correa made it 3 in the 63rd minute with his shot to the far post which also took a deflection before getting past Radunovic. In the 78th minute, Tomas Strakosha made an important reaction save on Eddie Salcedo to maintain the two-goal lead. Chiro Immobile put the game away in the 83rd minute with a stunning strike from the left side. Jordan Lukaku played him through and he hit the ball with his first touch. The ball curled and dipped around Radunovic to find the back of the goal. Immobile completed the hat-trick and added time from the penalty spot again which was his 34th goal of the season and his 14th from the spot. Immobile is now only two goals shy of Gonzalo Higuain's record set in the 2015-2016 season. And it just so happens that Lazio's final match of the season is against Napoli, which is also where Immobile was born. With the win, Lazio have pulled level with Atalanta in points, but Atalanta own the tiebreaker. Rounding out the week, Parma beat Brescia 2-1. Even though there were three goals, this match wasn't terribly exciting, which is understandable. Neither side had much left to play for. Parma have already secured their safety, and Brescia already knew that they were heading back to Serie B. Udinese defeated Cagliari 1-0 and Torino drew spell 1-1.
Moving on to Serie B, we've had two match days since our last episode, so let's go over both of those quickly. On match day 36, second place Crotone absolutely destroyed last place Livorno 5-1. With that win, Crotone secured their promotion to Serie A. Not a single team in the promotion playoff spots won this round. Third place Spezia drew Cremonese. Pordenone drew Ascoli 2-2 but remained in fourth after Frosinone lost 3-2 to Benevento. Cittadella lost 4-1 to Chievo and Salernitana lost 4-2 to Empoli. With that win and with Pisa losing 2-1 to Cosenza, Empoli moved back into the final promotion playoff position. At the bottom of the table, Trapani defeated Pescara 1-0, Juve Stabia lost 1-0 to Venezia, and Perugia beat Entella 2-1. So that was match day 36. Match day 37 was played on Monday. Spezia drew Entella 0-0, but stayed in third with Pordenone drawing Salernitana 1-1. The table is so tight that that draw pushed Salernitana all the way down to 9th outside of the promotion playoff. Frosinone had the opportunity to move up to 4th, but instead they dropped all the way down to 8th after losing 1-0 to Crotone. Cittadella moved up to 5th with a 1-0 victory over Venezia, so Spezia, Pordenone, and Cittadella have all secured their places in the playoff. Kevo moved up to 6th from 10th with a 1-0 win over Benevento, and Pisa moved up to 7th from 9th with a 1-0 win over Ascoli. Empoli lost 5-1 to Cosenza, so they too are out of the playoffs, down in 10th. At the bottom of the table, Trapani defeated Perugia to draw level with Juve Stabia, who lost 2-1 to Cremonese. Meanwhile, Pescara moved closer to safety by defeating Livorno 1-0. So Livorno are relegated, Trapani and Juve Stabia are currently in the other two relegation spots on 41 points. Cosenza and Perugia are in the relegation playoff spots on 43 and 45 points respectively, while Pescara are just barely safe on 45 points as well. That'll do for part 2, in part 3 we'll review Napoli's win over Sassuolo. Okay, so let's review Napoli's win over Sassuolo. Final checks for Gianluca Aureliano, and we're up and running in Naples. It's Napoli against Sassuolo. Now Zielinski, he's kept it. Husai can deliver. Still Elsid Husai, and that is his first ever goal for Napoli. It's taken him an awfully long time, nearly 200 appearances. But finally, the Albanian scores in Azzurri. Traore, nice give and go with Magnanelli. That's Caputo, and Juricic could be in here. The flag goes up. Filip Juricic put it into an empty net. They will check this, of course. That was confirmation that Juricic was at least half a yard offside. With Napoli, this is Juricic, full forward for Sassuolo. Hamid Traore could be in here. And it's a chance for Juricic! Sassuolo a level. But after all that, the goal has been chalked off again. Space for Traore and Caputo could be in for the equaliser. Never in doubt, was it? 
Chicho Caputo just can't stop scoring. Unbelievable. Three times tonight, Sassuolo have had a goal ruled out for offside. It's given away here to Traore. Now Caputo and Berardi. This time they are level. There's no ruling that one out. Chicho Caputo, the man. The wrong side of the last defender. Well, it appears we can take nothing for granted tonight. I'm not sure I've ever seen. Clever flick on from Politano. Tough angle for Mertens. This is Allen. And Napoli make absolutely sure. The really good finish from the substitute. Consigli is so frustrated. But Napoli finally make that opportunity count. And now whose side that will do, says Gianluca Aureliano. An important victory for Napoli. As you heard, this one finished 2-0 for Napoli. As always, we'll start with the lineups. Roberto De Zerbi went back to the 4-2-3-1 after playing with different formations in Sassuolo's previous two matches. Andrea Consigli started in goal. He probably wishes he could have the first goal back. Though the ball was hard hit, Consigli did get a hand on it but couldn't keep it out. Rogerio started at left back over Giorgos Kyriakopoulos, and Mert Muldur started at right back. I really, really like Muldur. He does so many things right. He actually reminds me of Giovanni Di Lorenzo and how he plays. Muldur loves getting forward, and he's rather creative for a right back. In the opening minutes, Locatelli picked out his run on the right wing. Muldur burned the Insignia with some clever footwork to create space before playing in the cross and winning a corner kick. In the middle of Sassuolo's back line were Marlin and Gianluca Ferrari, who started over Federico Peluso. The holding midfielders were Manuel Locatelli and Francesco Magnanelli. Locatelli is another one of Sassuolo's talented young players. He came from Milan's academy, and I'm sure Milan are regretting letting him go. Up top, Hamid Traore started on the left with Jeremy Boga not suited up for this match. We thought Lucas Haraslin would start on the left. He didn't start, but he did make an appearance coming in off the bench in the 83rd minute to replace Filip Juricic. Jurchit started in the middle. He was excellent once again. In the opening minutes, he did really well to dodge Koulibaly's tackle at midfield. In fact, he nutmegged Koulibaly, which few players can say they've done. That move opened up the entire field for him to run into, but he skied his shot over the bar. He was also unfortunate to have two goals overturned in the first half. The first because he was offside and the second because Traore was offside. He got another opportunity just before the break, but his shot caught too much of the goal and Ospina made the save. Domenico Berardi started on the right wing and Chicho Caputo started at striker. Each of them had goals disallowed for offside as well. Berardi and Caputo work really well together. They have excellent chemistry and they're both great passers and finishers. Caputo has 19 goals and 7 assists on the season while Berardi has 13 and 7. Gattuso fielded a very strong starting 11. David Ospina started in goal. He had a busy day. In the opening minutes, he made a rare poor pass in the middle of the pitch, but fortunately his backline covered for him and nothing came of it. I'll talk about Sassuolo's goals in a bit, but there wasn't much Ospina could do on any of them. On the second one, he made an excellent save on Traore. I would have liked to see him push it away from the goal rather than back into the danger area, but the ball was hit well from close range, so all he could really do was get a hand on it. Just before the break, he made a good save on Juricic, and just after the break, he made his best save of the match on Caputo, after Caputo played a lovely give-and-go with Berardi. As expected, Elcid Kusai started at left-back over Mario Rui. Kusai was the man of the match for me, which are words I never thought I'd utter in my lifetime, to be honest. He was heavily involved in the attack. His biggest contribution, of course, was the goal, which turned out to be the game winner. 
As you heard on the highlights, that was his first goal for Napoli in nearly 200 appearances. The exact number of games it took him was 193. He did really well to get forward in the 18th minute after a few quick passes between Insigne and Zielinski. He looked like a midfielder carrying the ball and then picking out Insigne's run. He was really feeling it in this match. Napoli had a counter-attack around the 70th minute and Kusai was still sprinting down the field. At centre-back, we did not see the three-man rotation. Koulibaly appears to be a fixture in the starting 11, while Kostas Manolas and Nikola Maksimovic alternate starts at the other centre-back position. Manolas was forced to leave the match in the 60th minute with a rib injury and was replaced by Maksimovic. Both of them were at fault on disallowed Sassuolo goals. On the second goal, Manolas dove in on Juricic and got caught out, which started the counter-attack leading to the goal. On the fourth goal, Maksimovic cleared the ball straight to Traore, who scored to Caputo, and he played Berardi through. Koulibaly didn't have his greatest match. He got beat a couple of times, and he had a few headers in the attacking half. One missed the goal, and the other bounced softly to Consili. But even when he's not his best, he's still better than most defenders. Giovanni Di Lorenzo completed the back line. He had another good match. We'll get to his ability to play the offside trap in a minute. His best play of the match came in the 54th minute with Rogerio charging down the wing. Di Lorenzo cut him off just before the touchline, kept the ball in play, then played it out safely to Calejon. Stanislav Lobotka started at Regista. Lobotka was also really good in this match. He covered more ground than any other player on the pitch. He has an incredibly high work rate and he seems to be getting better and better with every match he starts. So I'm not surprised Gattuso has been leaning on him more lately. At this point, I rate him and Diego Deme equally and I think Gattuso does too. Going forward, I think we'll see Gattuso start the Regista that is a better tactical matchup depending on the opponent. When he needs a fiery player with more grinta, he can play Deme and when he wants a reliable steady hand, he can use Lobotka. And of course, if he needs to change tactics in-game, he can swap them with each other. Zielinski and Fabian completed the midfield. Zielinski had his best match in a little while. He definitely benefited from the space that was available on the pitch because of Sassuolo's style of play. On the Kusai goal, he won possession in the middle of the field to start the attack. He was involved in the build-up and he played the final pass to Kusai before the shot. In the 20th minute, he played a perfectly weighted through ball to Insignia that should have resulted in Napoli's second goal of the match, but Insignia missed the goal. He had an excellent strike from outside the box in the 23rd minute with his left foot but narrowly missed the goal. Then a few minutes after that he had a hard shot with his right foot but it was straight at Consili who made the save. Zielinski left the match in the 79th minute after appearing to injure his ankle and was replaced by Elmas. Elmas looked really good and provided a much needed injection of fresh legs in the midfield. At the same time Alan replaced Fabian. Alan scored a beautiful goal and added time to put this match away. Mertens laid the ball off for him, which the Brazilian hit first time with the inside of his boot. The shot bent away from Concili and hit the inside of the back post before ending up in the back of the goal. Alain seems to enjoy playing against Sassuolo, that is his second goal against them this season. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne played on the left wing. He had a good match, but he continues to struggle with his finishing. His first chance came in the sixth minute of the match with a really nice buildup from the back, but he put his shot over the bar. His two best chances came in the span of a few minutes. First in the 18th minute, Kusai picked out his run inside the box and again he put his shot over the bar. Then in the 20th minute, Zielinski picked out his run into the box with Consili challenging, but he was unable to hit the target with his chip. Even when he's not scoring though, Insigne remains an important part of this squad. He also linked up really well with Kusai on the left side and you can always count on him to track back to help defend. It was Jose Callejon's turn to start at right wing. He was fairly quiet in this match and was replaced by Matteo Politano in the 67th minute as well. Politano nearly put the match away against his former club in the 87th minute, but his shot hit the upright. 
Politano also did well to flick his header onto Mertens on the Elan goal. Finally, Arkadouj Milik played at striker with Mertens not fully fit. This was another disappointing performance from Milik. If he keeps this up, Juve might just get him for the price they want, assuming they still want him. He really only had two real involvements in the match. He had a shot stopped by Consigli in the 64th minute, and he had a free header in the 66th minute that he completely mishit. Milik was replaced by Dries Mertens in the 67th minute, but Mertens didn't do much either. He was shown a yellow card for body-checking Traore, which means he'll miss Napoli's upcoming match against Inter. That's not necessarily a bad thing though, as Mertens did appear to labor a bit, so I doubt he would have started against Inter anyways. So those are the player assessments. There were plenty of talking points in this match, the biggest one being Sassuolo's four goals that were ruled off by VAR. I saw a lot of people talking about how lucky Napoli were in this match. I have a few comments about that. First, there was a bit of karma here. Napoli were really hard done by by the VAR in the Parma match, and those were legitimately questionable calls. While this was unusual, VAR got every single one of these decisions correct. There was no controversy whatsoever, and this is exactly what VAR is intended to do to get the calls right. Also, the only reason why this seemed unusual is because of a change this season to the way the matches are officiated. Now that we have VAR, linesmen are instructed to keep their flags down on close plays. In the past, linesmen's flags would have gone up right away on at least a couple of those plays, so we would have never known if the ball would have ended up in the back of the goal. On the other hand, prior to VAR, at least one of those goals probably would have stood, so I'm not complaining. Second, to say that Napoli were lucky is, in a way, an insult to the quality of Napoli's back line. On all four disallowed goals, you could see the conscious effort of Napoli's back line playing the offside. On the first goal, Di Lorenzo is running right next to Juricic, and right before the pass he cuts in, you immediately see Koulibaly put his arm up to signal for offside, even before the shot. On the second goal, again you see De Lorenzo is not playing the man. If he wanted to, he could have been running right next to Traore. Instead, he plays the pass and runs horizontally to stay in line with Koulibaly. And again, as soon as the pass was played, Koulibaly throws his arms up before the Traore shot is even taken. If you go back and rewatch the third goal, while Sassuolo is passing the ball around the back, you see Napoli's line shifting in unison. Even watching this one live, I thought Berardi was offside when the ball was played to him. And the fourth goal is the one that I would say Napoli were fortunate on because it was simply the result of Berardi mistiming his run by half a step. Third, there needs to be some accountability on Sassuolo's part for constantly going offside. I know some of these were close calls, but sometimes that is the difference between a goal counting or not. I thought the broadcast summed it up nicely when they said, now either Koulibaly et al. have the most effective offside trap in world football, or this is a statistical quirk, or Sassuolo are slightly off in terms of their timing, or a combination of all three. One thing I will give Sassuolo credit for is their finishing. Even though none of these goals ultimately counted, just about every time Sassuolo were presented an opportunity, they took it. That's been one of my biggest criticisms of Napoli lately, which is that they need to be more clinical in their finishing. After the match, Gattuso expressed his disappointment with Napoli's lack of scoring in his press conference with the zone. It seems Gattuso has not only instilled the same work rate that he had as a player, but he's also instilled his ability to finish. Other than Dries Mertens, who missed the Parma match and only featured as a sub in this one, Napoli don't really have a lethal goal scorer. Hopefully Napoli can see this Osimhen signing through because all indications are that he knows how to find the back of the goal. At times, Napoli's decision making was poor in this match as well. Near the end of the first half, Kusai took a shot from a sharp angle that Consili stopped. Kusai probably should have cut the ball back to Milik in front of the goal. And in the 57th minute on the counterattack, Fabian had Calejon wide open on his right, and Milik and Insigne were options on his left, but instead he elected to shoot and his shot was blocked. I don't want to sound too negative though, because unlike the Parma match, there were plenty of positives to take from this one. 
One of the things we talked about in the preview is that Sassuolo play a free-flowing style and how that would actually benefit Napoli on both sides of the ball. That proved to be correct. Napoli were given the time and space to move the ball around, especially in the first half. Sassuolo controlled play for the majority of the second half, but Napoli defended well. Like we talked about in the preview, Napoli's biggest weakness on defense is they struggle with the counterattack, which we did see in this match. Three of the four disallowed goals came on the counter. On the first goal, Fabian tried to flick past Rogerio, but he hit him right in the chest, and Rogerio sprung Traore on the counter. It seems whenever Fabian tries to be too cheeky in his own end, Napoli are punished. The second wasn't really a counterattack, but it felt like it after Manolas dove in on Juricic, who turned quickly and broke toward the goal. Consigli deserves some credit on that play for finding Juricic on the goal kick. On the third goal, Insigne conceded possession to Magnanelli at midfield, and he sprung Berardi on the counter. And as mentioned earlier, on the fourth goal, Maximovic cleared the ball straight to Traore, who then started the attack. Outside of those plays, though, Sassuolo never really looked that dangerous. As we saw in the Coppa Italia, when Napoli get 9 or 10 men behind the ball, they're very organized. They defend well as a unit, and that's very difficult even for the best squads in Europe to break down. Finally, I was also impressed with Napoli's high press, particularly in the first half. They often pressured Sassuolo's backline into making mistakes. In fact, that's how the build-up to the first goal started, with Zielinski pressing Magnanelli and forcing the turnover. A few passes later, the ball was in the back of the goal. So that's our review of Napoli's win over Sassuolo. Next, we'll preview Napoli's match on Tuesday against Inter. Okay, so we'll close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Tuesday against Inter. As usual, we'll start with Inter's most recent match, which was against Genoa. Andrea Pinamonti got the first scoring opportunity of the match in the 8th minute, but his powerful header missed the goal. In the 22nd minute, Brozovic had Inter's first chance of the match on the counterattack, but he pulled his shot from the top of the box wide of the goal as well. Christian Eriksen nearly opened the scoring in the 30th minute. Lautaro did well to win possession on the wing. The ball eventually found Lukaku, who again showed his strength to hold up the ball before laying it off to Eriksen, but the Danes guide his shot over the bar. Lukaku finally opened the scoring in the 34th minute on an excellent ball from Cristiano Biragi to the back post. Christian Zapata went down a bit easily, hoping to get a whistle, but it never came, and Lukaku headed in off the post. Yagello nearly equalized just before the break with an excellent free kick around the wall, but he just didn't have enough distance. Handanovic could do nothing but watch as the shot narrowly missed the goal. Inter doubled their lead in the 69th minute. Victor Moses completed a lovely movement by Inter with a square ball across the goal, but Ankerson got there just in time to clear the ball out with Borja Valero lurking. Genoa never really seemed a threat, but with how sporadic Inter have been since the break, I'm sure Interisti were relieved when Alexis Sanchez made it 2-0. He's arguably been Inter's best player since the restart. Victor Moses played an excellent cross on this goal and he was really good throughout the match. 
Lukaku made it three and added time with a wonderful run that ended with the Belgian scoring his 23rd in Serie A and 29th in all competitions. Brozovic released Lukaku on the counter. He used a clever step over to get past Romero, then cut into his left foot to lose Goldeniga before finishing past Perin. That was the final action of the match, which ended 3-0. So even though Inter played a weak opponent, I do have a few key takeaways from this match. They're all fairly obvious and they're not unique to this match. The first is that Romelu Lukaku is the most dangerous player on this team. Few players in the league have the same combination of skills that he does. The other name that comes to mind is Duvan Zapata. Both provide strength, pace, and skill, which we saw in Lukaku's two goals in this match. Lukaku created a chance for Brozovic using his strength to hold up play, and he outmuscled a very talented defender in Christian Zapata to score the first goal. On Lukaku's second goal, he showed his pace and skill, which is uncommon for a big man. He picked up the ball at midfield, used a step over to lose the defender, and he picked his corner. Fortunately, we have the ultimate stabilizer in Kalidou Koulibaly. We saw Koulibaly shut down Lukaku in the Copa Italia, so there's no reason to think he can't do that again. There is one very important difference in this match, though, which I'll get to in a moment. The second takeaway is that Inter have a very potent counterattack, which does not bode well for Napoli. Both the Brozovic opportunity and the Lukaku goal came off the counterattack. So far, the clubs that have played the counterattack against Napoli have been mid to bottom table clubs like Udinese and Parma. The thought of a top of the table club like Inter, with the talent they have, counterattacking is horrifying. The third and fourth takeaways are both obvious ones as well, which is that Lautaro Martinez is really struggling and Alexis Sanchez remains one of Inter's best players since the restart, which is also something we saw in the Coppa Italia match. So that's a good segue into the lineups. For Inter, Antonio Conte has predominantly used a 3-4-1-2 since the restart. Samir Handanovic will start in goal. According to Sky Sport, both Stefan de Vrij and Alessandro Bastoni will return to the back line, and they will be joined by Milan Skriniar, which is probably Inter's best back three. In the four-man midfield, we'll most likely see Ashley Young play on the left wing-back position and Antonio Candreva play at the right wing-back position. In the middle, Nicolo Barella should slot in for the suspended Roberto Gagliardini to play alongside Marcello Brozovic. Immediately in front of them, we should see Christian Eriksen, and up top, Sky is reporting that Alexis Sanchez will start over Lautaro alongside Lukaku. That is just about as tough of a squad that Inter can field, and interestingly, it would only feature one difference from the side that played against Napoli in the second leg of the Coppa Italia semi-final. For Napoli, even though David Ospina started against Sassuolo on Saturday, I expect Gattuso to go back to the Colombian in this one because his footwork is superior to Meretz. At the back, we should see arrested Mario Rui return to the starting 11 at left back, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start again at right back. In the middle, Nikola Maximovic will start over Costas Manolas, who picked up a rib injury in the Sassuolo match that could keep him out for a while, and he will start next to Kaladu Koulibaly. In the midfield, I expect Diego Demet to start over Stanislav Lobotka to give Napoli a bit more fire and to help Maximovic defend Alexis. In front of him, I think we'll get another start from Fabian and Zielinski. Even though they both started last match, Gattuso has used both of them quite a bit and we've seen them both start in three or four consecutive matches. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing. Arkadouche Milik will start at striker with Dries Mertens on a suspension. And Matteo Politano should be back in the starting 11 after Callejon started last match. In terms of the betting odds, Inter are even money, Napoli are 2.4 to 1 underdogs, and the draw pays 2.8 to 1. 
Before I get to my prediction, I want to quickly cover a couple of talking points ahead of this match. I think both managers will be looking to win this one. For Napoli, these final few matches are the best preparation they have ahead of their Champions League clash with Barcelona, which is also why I'd be happy to see Inter start their best 11 because we want the toughest competition possible. Inter are in a similar situation, they're preparing for the Europa League match against Hetafe. Inter also have the added motivation that if they win this match they guarantee themselves second place in Serie A, which would represent a significant improvement over the last few seasons. The other point I want to make is that I think we're going to see a very different approach from Napoli in this match than we saw in the Coppa Italia. For those who didn't watch the Coppa Italia or perhaps don't remember, Napoli played an ultra-conservative style, they defended with 10 men behind the ball, and they played the counter-attack. In this match, I think Napoli are going to play much more positively. I think they're going to try their best to control the tempo of the match, to move the ball quickly, and to attack space. The reason I think that is again because this match is preparation for Barcelona and Napoli needs to win that match against Barcelona to advance. That means they can't sit back, they need to be more positive, they need to get forward and they need to score. If they do then perhaps they could sit back and defend after that. Given all of that, for my prediction, which I hope is wrong, I'm going to go with Inter to win this match 3-1. For the Inter I'll give Lukaku 1 and Alexis Sanchez a brace. For Napoli, I'll give the goal to Zielinski, who's been coming really close lately, and I think he's due for a goal. I think Sanchez will be the key player again for Inter, and that Maksimovic is really going to have his hands full while Koulibaly marks Lukaku. Demme can help mark Sanchez, but that means Eriksen will have space to work in, and he can be a dangerous player both as a passer and as a shooter. Like we saw in the Coppa Italia, Inter's wingbacks create a lot of problems for Napoli's back line. What concerns me the most though is not Inter's squad but Napoli's and in particular Arkadiusz Milik starting as striker. Napoli have really struggled to find the back of the goal of late. Milik seems to have checked out and Insigne can't seem to hit the target while our midfielders don't score often. Even though Napoli scored two in each of the Udinese and Sassuolo matches, they scored really late goals in both of those matches. Like I said, I hope I'm wrong. I think this will be a chess match. I think it has the potential to be high scoring. And in any event, I think it will be very interesting. So that'll do it for part four. That'll also do it for episode 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 or you can find the podcast at Fortsanopoly Pod. We'll talk to you again after the Inter match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre.
Social Podcast Network.